the our public policy committee is hosting the influence of public safety on the return to New York City. And joining us today are Carol Mason, who is the president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and also Greg David, who is a journalist for the city and former editor of Crane's New York Business. Um, briefly, in terms of our agenda today, um, Greg and Carol will give a brief introduction um, of their roles and background. Um, we'll do a few poll questions and then get into the dialogue around the event. And um, if you could put your questions as they come up into chat and then we'll address those at the end. Um, so thanks everyone. And I will turn it over to Greg. Uh, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Greg David. I've been a journalist since 1970. I have three jobs these days. I'm director of the Business and Economics Reporting Program at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. And I'm talking to you from my office. I'm virtually the only one here though. I'm director of the Ravage Fiscal Reporting Program, which um, brings reporters from around the country for deep dives into fiscal policy. And I cover economics and fiscal policy for the nonprofit news site, The City, after 35 years and two months as an editor and contributor to Crane's New York business. Obviously, the economy has been central to all I've done since I moved to New York. And especially in my book, Modern New York, I spent a lot of time on the issue of crime and its relationship to the economy. Carol? Um, good afternoon. My name is Carol Mason, and I am the president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which is part of the City University of New York system. So you've got two CUNY people here with you today, um, the power of CUNY. Um, before joining um, the CUNY um, four years ago, I was the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Justice Programs at the U.S. Department of Justice, and that's a mouthful, but the important part is I had a $4 billion with a B dollar budget at that point to assist state and local governments with criminal justice issues and victim services, and also oversaw the Bureau of Justice Statistics and the National Institute of Justice. Um, and so the, these issues have been near and dear to my heart. The last four years, John Jay has been the host of what we call our Smart on Crime convening, but we, we will be moving that this fall to a future public safety convening. So I'm looking forward to this conversation with you all today to encourage you all to keep on the trajectory and support the trajectory that we've been on to improve our criminal justice system and make it more equitable and fair. And we can do that and keep our community safe at the same time. Thank you. Uh, so thank you. Our format today is uh, it's a fireside chat. Um, I'm going to have some comments and ask some questions. I thought I'd begin with the PEG, as we call it in the journalism business, and some of the history. This is a paragraph from the New York Times story uh, over the weekend after the Marine was shot near the Marriott Marquis in Times Square. Nearly 800 people have been shot in the city through June 30th, according to data from the police department the highest number over the same period since 2002. The increase in gun violence this year has cast a shadow on the city's reopening after 15 months of lockdown. New York's year-long state of emergency was finally lifted last week, and Times Square is once again a bursting cacophony on Saturday night, a full-length Broadway musical is back, etc. I thought I'd do a little history for you, and the history of the decline of crime in New York begins in the year of 1900, one year after David Dinkins was elected mayor of the city of New York, and there were 2,200 murders in the city that year. The tabloids uh, asked the key question, the back pay, the headline was do something day, and we did something. We raised taxes and began a broad expansion of the police force. The next crucial development came when Rudy Giuliani beat David Dinkins in the 1993 election and made a crucial choice. He was deciding whether to keep Ray Kelly as his police commissioner or to bring in Bill Bratton from Boston. And in a historic decision, he brought in Bill Bratton from uh, Boston. You know, Bratton tells this amazing story in his memoir about being a young cop in Boston. And the precinct where he was assigned had a corner where the kids made noise at night. And every night the cops went out and dispersed the kids and they came back the next night. 
And that convinced Bratton that that was the wrong way to do policing. And so what Bratton brought to New York is a theory of policing called broken windows. There are a couple different ways to discuss broken windows. At its fundamental core, broken windows says police have to address all kinds of disturbances to build trust to the community. And the other great addition that Bratton and especially his guru, Jack Maple, brought to New York was the use of statistics. And the thing they decided was that by cracking down on small crimes, transit um, turnstile jumping, for example, they would wind up ensnaring more important criminals. And those strategies began a long series, a long, two decade long decline in crime in New York. What was interesting is that Bratton's successes outlasted his very weak successors. Bratton and Giuliani's egos were too big to share the stage of New York City. When Michael Bloomberg surprisingly won election in 2001, he too had a choice about police commissioner and he brought Ray Kelly back. And the long decline in crime continued, but at one point, Kelly and Bloomberg decided that to crack down on crime in New York, we had to do something about guns. And their response was stop and frisk, in which enormous numbers of people, virtually all of whom were Black and Hispanic, were stopped and frisked on the street. In retrospect, it was stop and frisk that led to the re-election of, um, to, to the election of Bill de Blasio, but the real story here is the stubbornness of Ray Kelly and um, uh, Michael Bloomberg. They knew stop and frisk had gone too far. And in the last two years of the administration, they drastically reduced the number of, of stop and frisks, but they wouldn't admit it. They wouldn't admit they had made a mistake. What did Bill de Blasio do? Well, to buttress his credentials, he brought Bill Bratton back with a plan to fix what was broken in the Kelly regime. And what Bratton did or tried to do in fixing it was to install community policing, to reconnect the cops with their communities. It may have achieved some successes. Crime continued to go down to very low levels. At one point, there were fewer than 300 murders. There were only, a, I believe there were fewer than 300 murders one year. Um, and in addition to that, the city felt extraordinarily safe and on a per capita basis was among the very safest cities in the country. Then we get to the pandemic and the social justice movement and the uptick in crime. So that's the context for where we are. So I'd like to turn it, I'd like to turn to Carol now and say, can you, what do you, make of the uptick in crime? Is it primarily about shootings and to some extent murders? What should we think about this? So thank you for the opportunity, but I, I'd like to first respond to some of um, the premises of your comments. All right. <laughs> Particularly your last comment, um, which I heard as equating social justice reform with the uptick in crime. I, I didn't mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I just, it was coincident. I'm saying it I know. was coincidence. I know, but I, I couldn't miss the opportunity to, to talk about that. And I wanna I wanna use some facts first. Um, as I mentioned, I, I led the Bureau of Justice Statistics when I was at the Department of Justice and um, um, understand the power of facts and data um, that we all ought to be using to guide our conversations and to guide our policy decisions. And, and what, I wanna just give some context again to what you've said. Um, New York City um, has experienced uh, extraordinary crime reduction over the last decades uh, with crime in, um, reaching a six decade low. So in the 80s and 90s, when, when a lot of the um, practices that you mentioned were in place, uh, the city recorded more than 2000 murders in some years. You mentioned 2200 in the year for Dinkins first year as, as um, mayor. But according to the NYPD's statistics that I got this week, index crimes, and those are the most um, violent crimes, index crimes are rape, murder, uh, and robbery. So I wanna make sure we have the facts in the, in the context of the narrative that's developing. Um, index crimes in New York were down slightly 
1.7% this year uh, compared to the same period last year. There are a few categories where serious crimes are up and homicide is one of those. It's up 17.4%, um, auto theft is up 25% and felony assault is up 7.7%. But other crimes have decreased. Robbery, burglary and grand larceny all declined between 5% and 16% year to year. I think it's important to, to also, again, put in context where we are. Any homicide is bad, but, and we do need to focus on what's happening. Um, but I wanna, again, make sure that people uh, understand the numbers. There've been an increase in homicides and shootings this year. We had a 64% increase in shootings year to date compared to last year and a 13.5% increase in murders from 171 to 194. In 2020, the number of murders rose to 462, up 45% um, from, from 2019, which is 319. So I think that, that, that um, if you look at the period before the pandemic, crime had continued to decrease. And what, what our criminal justice data experts will tell us is, Nobody's really sure what caused the decline, um, but what we do know is that, that reducing jail population did not increase crime. It continued to go down even as we enacted reforms. And so um, for me, what I think we've gotta be careful about doing in this time period and in, in in looking at what's happening is stay focused on the data and what's actually happening. And what, what you'll see is that, um, yes, let there be light. <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> what you will see is that the reforms that have been put in place in many jurisdictions before the pandemic were working. And so there is a lot of, so, so what we're seeing is that crime is going up, not just in New York City, but other areas. And the common denominator is the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic. Um, uh, there are a group of folks that I deal with regularly as we think about how do we continue um, to address the inequities in our system and move to more public safety. And I'll get to my project late in a, in a little while. But one of the things that, that, that people have pointed out is that during the pandemic, all the systems that were in place that were there to support the reduction in violent crime were, were shut down because we were shut down. So the violence interrupters weren't out there, the social workers weren't out there, the, the kids weren't in school, all the social safety networks, people in their household were dying, people were unemployed, housing and insecure. So there are all these factors that lead to, um, that, that could be part of the uptick. But what I think that we ought to do is look at and examine where it's happening and why. And it's concentrated mainly in, in poor neighborhoods right now and black and brown communities. And so I don't, I, I think we've gotta be careful with the narrative um, but also see the opportunity that we have because of the federal stimulus money to address systemic issues long-term that lead to these issues. And I also think we need to realize that police are not the sole um, um, people to deliver public safety. Um, we know that there are a lot of other things that work to improve public safety, investment in mental health, investment in incredible messengers and other things. So I see that you want to ask me another question. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, pull, we'll pull these apart as we go through. But yes, you know, certainly I agree about the facts and I am like to consider myself a data, data journalist. So I, I think the numbers are really important, but there's also clear that there's a perception out there and there's a sense of fear. Um, and the New York City Partnership did a, did a survey and found that um, a sense of unease about the city is one of the major barriers to the return of office workers. And I, um, I know it uh, personally, a um, friend of mine went back to his office um, at one of the big finance companies this week. And when we got together, his brother who works in the suburbs, the first question he had for him is, how's the city? And this, I must admit, is someone who actually moved out of the city um, uh, during the pandemic for many reasons, but a feeling of insecurity was part of it. So talk about the rise of this anxiety with this fear, whatever it is, and what you think it's based on, and I guess what you think we should do about it. So um, 
I hope you take this with uh, um, the intended meaning, but I think media and journalists. Are, I, are I was going to ask you that, so that's okay. That's yeah, perfectly I think, fine. I think that they're at the core of 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 selling a fault, what I consider a false narrative about what's really happening, and 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 you know their job is to sell newspapers, sell news, and um, fear and bad news sell. Unfortunately, we. We had this issue when I was back in the Department of Justice, we were always trying to figure out how do we correct the narrative around policing and get people to see the positive aspects of policing when, when what sells is the, the negative. And so I think that the challenge is, to, it's, it's, that's why this meeting today is so important because this is a meeting at a group of, of important business leaders in New York. And I applaud you for coming to hear this conversation and hear the facts so that we can help break the cycle of this narrative so that people understand the facts and understand that it is safe to come to New York. It is safe to come to work. Um, what we've got to do is invest in areas where there is inequity um, and factors that lead to an uptick in crime and violence and focus on those issues and focus on those few people um, because the data will show that it's a few people that are responsible for the violence. And so you've got to figure out how to support those people and moving them out of those behaviors. Because I, I was on a conference yesterday with the National League of Cities um, uh, with a young adult panel. And they, what they said to us, we don't wake up in the morning wanting to go shoot somebody. It's circumstances and things that happen that cause us to fall into these places where that is what we do for survival. And so the, you know, are we providing good education opportunities for jobs, support, for not just the young folks, but their families, so they can thrive. And I think that's what's important to break this cycle. Uh, I do think that we need to do what the president's talking about doing tracing guns and getting guns out of the hands of people who don't need them, but that's another discussion. What, what should the media do? I mean, what would be the uh, reasonable corrective? Or if you would agree with me that you have to report the Times Square shooting, especially since it was the second one in a month. What should the media say when they do that? I think that, that I, you're right. They have to report what's happening, but it's. But I think that that um, it would be nice if they would also uh, ask questions and ask about the data and ask why is this happening? What's really happening? What does this signify? And report on the answers to those questions. I'm sure that some journalists are doing that, some are. asking those questions. Um, but I, but I. I, I frankly only watch um, NBC Nightly News because I got tired of local news where it's just murder, 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 murder. And, 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 th and this has been going on for decades. This is not new. And, and I don't think it represents what's really happening. So I don't have the answer. We've been, uh, we've been trying to get journalists, bring them into these conversations, invite them to our convenings so that they see this is what communities are doing. This is what really works. Um, I told, um, um, Katie and Margot uh, earlier today that I just left uh, a convening that, that the MacArthur Foundation is hosting today for their safety and justice challenge. And I can't wait for the panel at five o'clock. I wish it had happened earlier because they are gonna tell us how to combat the false narrative that's developing around crime and, the, and, and, what, and, and its relationship to criminal justice reform. Um, so I think that the, the challenge is for media folks to do what you're doing, have conversations, get the facts, engage with people and see where things are working and how it's working and tell that story. I sometimes wonder whether in a way it's a self-correcting problem because I think one of the issues is that there's so, there are just fewer people around. Mm -hmm. And when someone, when you're worried about someone, when you see someone, and for the most part in Times Square, um, those are homeless people who are populating the street. You know, when you're the only person in the subway car with them, it's one thing. When you're in a subway car with 50 people, it's another thing. And I, I, when I talk to people, I feel a lot of sense of anxiety because there are not too many people out there. It's that there are too few people. And if people do come back in the city, I wonder if some of the anxiety will ebb. Well, I will tell you that I've been riding um, the subway since April and seeing a steady uptick in the people on the train. And I came back last um, Thursday night on, the, on a train from um, DC at 10 o'clock at night, caught the A train from Penn Station and felt perfectly safe. And there were lots of people. Around. Matter of fact, 
people were so polite, uh, which is uh, the chivalry that I've seen now um, isn't something I saw pre-pandemic. So I encourage people to, you know, it's like a muscle you haven't used in a while. Come back out, come into the city and see it. Are there things that are that are that that we wish weren't happening? Absolutely, but I think that that um, people are are out and about. I went on a dumpling crawl on Saturday down in Chinatown. It was packed. I was hoping that people still weren't back yet. <laughs> um, but I think that that um, those people who have not been spending time in the city come back in, and you'll see that it's it is uh, it is really back open again. So I think we've covered some of the big issues. Why don't you tell us about the project and um, what can be done to make communities safe and equitable? So thank you for that opportunity. So my little prop here, I know it was sent out to you all in advance, our future public safety report. So um, I want to just give you a little background about why the George Floyd killing was so important to me, um, other than you know the normal natural thing. When I was the assistant attorney general, um, I funded a project called the Building Community Trust and Justice. I cobbled together money from lots of different sources um, to address the, the trust between communities of color in particular and law enforcement. Um, and we spent, uh, we had six pilot sites and Minneapolis was one of those pilot sites. I started this work before Michael Brown ever happened um, but we launched it after Michael Brown. And, and the goal was to make sure we never had a Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown situation again. Um, Minneapolis was one of our pilot sites. We spent millions of dollars in years in doing procedural justice, implicit bias and racial reconciliation work in, um, in Minneapolis with every sworn and civilian member of the police department in Minneapolis and working with the community in racial reconciliation. So when I saw that what happened with George Floyd, um, I was devastated because we had used a research base um, in developing this program and we got something beyond everybody's comprehension with what happened with George Floyd that day. Um, so so the, the narrative then became police versus, you know, defund the police, reinvest. So I said, let's take the temperature down and have a conversation around what does public safety look like? and how do we achieve public safety, and then talk about what is the role of policing in that. And I thought that as the, a black woman president of what was originally a police college, in partnership with the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, um, who at that point was led by a black woman, I thought if we can't figure out how to help the country through this conversation, shame on us. So I had a series of six curated conversations with law enforcement executives, union people, mayors, uh, public health officials, advocates, a range of people. And I thought that if we could get people focused on what public safety looks like, that would give us a better starting place to help communities through this. And we wound up with nine points of consensus. Um, I remember one of my colleagues at John Jay, she was afraid of what happens if we don't get any agreement. I said, I'm an eternal optimist. I was confident that we would get consensus, but to come up with nine points of consensus was beyond my expectations. And so the, the, the challenge now is keeping focused on what the work is that needs to get done that leads to public safety and not letting this narrative about the uptick in murders dissuade us from and distract us from doing what needs to be done. Because I, what, I, what I fear is that we'll return to those practices of the 90s um, of, 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 of that strategy of policing, which does not um, produce long-term results. And, and, and we have an opportunity again with the stimulus money coming in to address these systemic inequities that I think will make us safer communities in the long run. So give us a rundown of what we should be doing. So what I think that, that as, the, as the business community, and so I'll focus on what your role can and should be. I think that here in New York City, um, I've had this conversation with um, um, Abney and others. Um, I think the business community um, can use your voice to push the elected officials, um, schools, the mayors, uh, um, police chiefs, everyone to continue to sit down together and look at what's happening and where investments need to be made and how to be strategic around those investments. Again, I keep going back to the federal stimulus dollars because what I don't want us to do is just bunch, buy a bunch of things and not really address issues. And, and let me frame it this way. 
um, everybody's been talking about the fifth, this is the 50th anniversary of, of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On song. And if you haven't seen the CNN special around it, it's powerful. And you see images from 50 years ago when they didn't have the kind of cameras we have today that look very much like what we see happening in some of our cities today. And, and what I say to folks is I was, I'm old enough to remember 50 years ago when that song came out and what the country was like. Some of you are young enough that you'll be here 50 years from now. And I don't want you to be having the same conversation 50 years from now saying, why didn't they get it right in 2021? And so what you can do is um, challenge um, folks to come together to have conversations in communities. And New York is, is not one community. New York City is even not even five boroughs or not five communities, they're multiple communities. And I think that, that you need to decide where you're going to put your mark down in terms of investing in those communities and investing and making sure people have conversations and bring the right people to the table, especially young people. They need to be in the conversations. If you could have heard the conversation we heard, we heard yesterday with the National League of Cities, you would understand why it's so important to have our young people engaged. And they're so good on these issues and they understand it. And so what one of them said um, to us is, you, we need young people as translators to help us understand what the issues are and what they think the solutions need to be um, in addressing these issues. So I would encourage business leaders to look in their backyards and where your, where your investments are in terms of your business investments and get engaged in those communities, be part of the conversations to be thinking about what's happening and how do I invest in the success of our communities. So before this, I was just listening to the mayor and the city council announced with great fanfare their budget decisions, especially on the federal stimulus money. So where should that federal stimulus money go? What are the specifics that would deal with um, crime inequity? Well, I think number one, investing in our public K through 12 system and not just buying new computers, but really looking at how are we delivering education and delivering in a way that, that, that the young people are coming out educated and prepared for college because they, or, or technical school or something, because we do know that K through 12 is not enough um, to, that they need something beyond that in order to deal with some of the income, income disparities. Um, I think that they ought to be investing in quality housing. I think they ought to be investing in job training and investing in, in, in um, creating job opportunities because we saw that during COVID, the communities that were most impacted were those that were already poor. Um, and we need to figure out how do we make sure that we move people out of poverty. And that is a big driver of reducing crime when people have um, opportunities to succeed. I would invest in healthcare. I would invest in, in not just mental health care, but healthcare generally. Um, and I would also encourage the city to look at um, alternative responses when people are in crisis. Um, I would invest in not just social workers and mental health providers, but you know, by default, police are doing things they don't want to do. They don't want to be the, the call to get everything that's happening because that's not what they're equipped to do. And if we can design other systems and, and the folks who are credible messengers, which are people who, who have been in, entangled in our justice system, using them to help break these cycles and pay them like we pay other people's professionalize it, which we're working on at John Jay with others as well. Then I think you break that cycle. And in making those kinds of investments to do that is what we need to be what we need to be doing. So I would note that there is an unprecedented expansion <coughs> of money coming into the education system in the city. Mm -hmm. um, there's a major expansion of money for mental health, which is part of the effort in the city to um, uh, replace police officers with others in those situations of mental crisis. But there is um, much less money than the advocates believe is necessary for job training, especially because some economists I talk to think there could be as many as 200,000 people who will lose their jobs and not be able to get them back, even after the recovery because of um, a changing skill nature, et cetera. And I know that many people are upset that we haven't used a lot more um, than we uh, aren't spending a lot more of the federal stimulus money on that. Well, you know, I, I, I have to say the ready answer is our employer, CUNY. Um, you know, that's what CUNY is designed to do is move people out of poverty. 
And we've got seven community colleges that are well equipped to train people and prepare people for new jobs in the new economy. And we need to be encouraging people to do that. So I was in a long discussion of that. I did a webinar on all that with people from the workforce, actually for the Harvard Business Club. And uh, James Parrott from the New School said that there should be a billion dollars put against such a program. Um, Ken Adams, who runs LaGuardia, which is one of the colleges where they do that, said he'd be happy with $10 million to work on it over the summer. But all agreed that while CUNY has the resources to do that, CUNY has two missions. One is the academic mission and one is the job training mission. And it's hard to get the job training mission uh, spotlight and the momentum that it uh, deserves. Tell us um, more uh, to what, what are the next steps uh, for your group and especially, and then what are the next steps in addition to sort of getting involved in conversations that the people on this call uh, could take? So what we're doing, uh, again, you know, I, I, I like to say this problem is big and big enough that it needs all of us in the solution. Um, John Jay doesn't own this solution. So my, I've been working with Vera Institute, uh, Center for Court Innovation, um, the Public Welfare Foundation, um, Education Trust, um, some public health groups. We're pu pulling together a convening um, that we hope to have the end of October, 1st of November, where we're going to um, continue the work that we've done in the past on our Smart on Crime convening, but, but and bring it further out from just the criminal justice perspective to look at best practices and make sure that people understand this is what is working in communities um, and this is what you should be doing. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the MacArthur Foundation has their safety and justice challenge that's working in communities and doing a great job. The Obama Foundation has done a mayor's pledge about reimagining policing. And the next step is thinking about reimagining public safety. So the next steps for us, are again, showing people how do you, multiple things, how do you have the conversations in your communities um, to build out a plan? Because I do think that, that people need to be engaged as you talked about budget allocation and how do these resources get allocated in a way that addresses these long-term issues. But we're gonna be um, bringing in advocates to help them understand this is how you engage in that conversation. This is, this is where the, the levers of change are, um, but also talking to community, to elected officials about how to, how to help them engage community members and young people in the conversation as well. So that's the first step. The next step as a, as a police college, um, I'm also interested in um, pulling together some um, um, educational resources for police departments to, to get them thinking differently about their role and how to, how to rebuild that trust with the communities. I, I recommend listening to Attorney General Keith Ellison's remarks after the sentencing last week. And he talked about, you can't have public safety without community trust because police can't solve crimes without the engagement of people, witnesses in the community. And if they don't have that trust, they're not gonna cooperate. So, so one of the things that I wanna do is build out programs um, to bring to police departments, um, adding on what we did during the national initiative uh, to build community trust, but do it through a race lens and every community is different. So understanding that what, what's happened in Minneapolis is different than what's gonna happen in New York City than what happens in Atlanta um, and helping um, again, have police understand why community members don't trust them, what the history is, so that they understand that as they're interacting with their community. So that was a, a whole lot in a short answer. So um, this would be a good time for people to put questions in the chat because I have one more question to ask. And while there was a little, while chaos has um, for the moment taken over the mayor's race, uh, it would seem that the mayor's race did um, speak directly to this issue of how people thought about crime because it was crime, most people I talk to think, or the fear of crime, that propelled um, Eric Adams' candidacy to the uh, number one position at the end of the first round of voting. What, what did you take away from the mayor's race about crime and the attitudes of people in the city? Um. So it was interesting what, you know, I've just been reading the newspapers. Um, I wasn't involved in the campaign and I, um, 
I actually don't vote in New York. Um, um, so I could be just a neutral observer of what was happening. And what I found interesting is watching the narrative of what was important change as the, uh, you know, in the beginning, it was about reopening and how are we gonna come back? And then as we reopened, um, the narrative became about crime. Um, I don't, what I, what I worry about again is a narrative taking hold um, that I don't think is fair to the work that many of us have done to make the system more equitable and fair while keeping communities safe. Um, so what it tells me is that the city um, is, uh, is uh, I, don't, I can't think of a better word, all over the place, because when you look at the vote, <laughs> you know, the top three have very different approaches to what the city needs. So I don't think the city, rightfully so, is, is, is unanimous about what the problem is and what needs to happen next. Uh, and I think that's right. I think there are many things that are needed. I think that they're, they're, they're a focus on trying to figure out what, why we have this uptick in crime and public safety, this, this uh, question about how do we um, support the economic vitality and return of the city, um, as well as having a well-functioning city. I, 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 uh, I, it would be interesting to have all three of them rolled into one person as the next mayor. <laughs> what, uh, do you have any recommendations? What should the next police, there is gonna be a new police commissioner. What, hmm. what qualities do we want in the next police commissioner? So um, I think the NYPD leadership um, understands these issues. Um, and, and I think that, that what I'd like to see is a leader who understands the importance of the relationship to the community um, in figuring out public safety. I think if somebody comes in and repeats some of the behaviors from the 90s, um, it's gonna set us back, set us back on multiple fronts. And so I'd like um, a new, uh, whoever comes in to lead the mayor's office as well as the police department to understand the importance of relationships and communication across, across all constituencies um, and a commitment to engaging in conversation and not just thinking they have the answers to solving crime. So I think it's somebody with good interpersonal and listening skills will be critical. I have only one question in the chat so far. I hope there'll be some more. But the one question is, do we know uh, I mean, you, you did say that many of the shootings and murders are in poor communities of color. Do we know more about the breakdown so far? Or is um, that what we need to find out about? So all I know is that, that, that the crime numbers are not evenly distributed through New York City communities. Um, they, are, they tend to be concentrated in lower income and black and brown com communities that are experiencing the brunt of this harm. That's, that's the most detail I have right now. Um, obviously, people can dig in and, and, and get the answer to those questions, but um, I didn't come with the answer to that question. So there was a question in there for me, and that is the pros and cons of converting hotels into temporary housing and shelters and the business, specifically the business community that surrounds those shelters. Well, when the, the, the reason for doing this, of course, is that in an area of, in, as the COVID epidemic took place, you couldn't have congregate shelters without turning them into the same disaster we saw at the nursing homes. And our hotels were empty. And so there was plenty of room in the hotels to house people um, basically in single rooms or families in a, in a room. And the mayor has now adopted a policy that just uh, accelerated in the last two days to return those people to the shelters. I don't think those any, there's any doubt that in some key areas, the neighbors got upset. Whether it had any specific economic impact is hard to say. Um, oh, my lights went off again. I'll do that in a second. At least we but, know you're being energy efficient. Yes. Um, well, CUNY saves every dime it can, right? Um, so we don't know what economic impact it has, but it is a problem that is going to end because they are going to empty the hotels. I'm actually gonna be very interested to see what the economic impact is on the hotels. Um, you might read a statistic which says that New York hotels are back to about 65% occupancy. 
but there's a major asterisk that most people don't explain. And that is that that 65% of the hotels that are open, if you go back to the number of rooms that were available pre-pandemic, the number is still something like 35%. So that is definitely an issue. A question for Carol, while there's a lot of change that needs to happen in order to see improvement on many fronts, what action would Carol specifically recommend to City of New York take first in the chain of change? Um, the first step I would uh, take again is, uh, has already started. And, you know, I do want New York to New Yorkers to recognize that NYPD has been engaging with communities and talking with communities about how to better serve um, the communities. Uh, I think that the first step again is to be engaged in conversations with the elected officials about how this federal stimulus money is going to be spent. You, you all have an outsized voice in, in, in um, helping to shape what happens next because people care about what happens from a business perspective in New York because we're all dependent on its success. I think that you all need to you know, weigh in, use your voice and say, ask questions, show up at the meetings and say, how are you addressing systemic issues? Uh, what's your plan? So that they know that you're watching and that you care and that you're engaged in these discussions. So that, that's, that's to me the first step is making sure that we don't squander this opportunity with the resources to address the problems that we that were laid bare because of COVID um, and the George Floyd situation. So um, no more questions so far. Carol, yes, do you actually there's one more yeah. in this? What, here, um, in this one? Yeah, there are there some recommend or there are some police departments across the country. Ah. So I will say, so I was um I moderated a panel for the National League of Cities a few weeks ago where um, Newark talked about how it's created basically an office of violence reduction um, and, and funded it um, on par with how it funds policing. And um, I believe they had no shootings um, during, the, you know, during 2020. Um, it was some fabulous statistic like that. And I thought, wow, how did you do that? Well, I know how they did it. So there are cities and DC is doing some, uh, again, innovative things with creating, when you create an office of violence reduction and you fund it um, and treat it like uh, an important long-term part of the city, often what happens is these, 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 these programs are treated as programs and they get funded when there's an economic crisis, they're defunded. And that's a mistake because these, this, to keep on this trajectory, it takes long-term sustained work, um, permanent work. Um, so yes, there are cities where, where that is happening successfully. Um, I know that in Louisville, um, they're beginning to do more work in this area. There, 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 are, uh, there are lots of models of success. Um, if you go to our report, we reference some of those places where some good work is happening. Um, but I, I, um, I also suggest that you go to the um, MacArthur site, the Safety and Justice Challenge. Those cities that are participating in that challenge are really doing good work and succeeding. So there are lots of models across the country where people are doing this work and investing in this work and, and it, it does produce results. And, and nobody asked this, but I do wanna say this because there's this narrative out there that bail reform is part of the reason for the, for the uptick in crime. Um, and I just wanna um, talk about a recent study of 12 jurisdictions that implemented significant pretrial reforms, um, found that each experienced subsequent decreases or negligible increases in crime after implementation. And our neighbor, New Jersey, um, eliminated, basically eliminated virtual uh, cash bail in 2017 reduced its pretrial justice populate, jail population by 45% and did not experience a corresponding increase in crime um, generally or from people released pretrial. So these are, these are experiences pre-COVID. So that's why I think we can say that a lot of what's happening is, is COVID related. And we've got to examine what resources and programs were impacted by COVID that are now showing themselves up in increased crime numbers. And we are convinced, those of us in this work, 
that when those resources get back out there, that the numbers will come back down, but they've got to um, get those folks back out there, the credible messengers back out there. And what I would say is that, that it is happening in communities, happening well, but, but you've gotta be careful of who you bring in to do this work to make sure they've got a track record. Um, there's a lot of data and research uh, um, about the success of these programs. New York is using the two, the two big models that people talk about. One is um, ceasefire, which is run out of John Jay, and the other is cure violence, which is uh, Gary Slutkin's model. They both work um, in terms of focusing on the small number of people who really are, who are really the ones causing the violence and breaking that cycle. Um, Oakland has done some great work um, and there are programs where they, um, where it's important to, to invest in the people doing the work and pay them um, as real city employees that are part of your public safety network. So I just like to end by putting um, the- We actually have a poll. Good. Oh, we if, have a poll. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, if you don't mind. And we had one other question come through, um, but uh, so we'll, we'll hold that for after the poll. Um, but uh, people who uh, are responding to this may have changed their um, their opinion from the beginning of this talk to uh, to the latter half. So um, if you could take a moment and just um, fill this out and then we'll share the results. Okay, so um, so first question, is public safety a concern in regard to your personal return to work in New York City? So definitely some people from, from the audience are, are still, I would say, uh, you know, hesitant, um, but perhaps as we I learn more about um, the programs and the sort of activity and volume of people come back to the streets, that will change. Second question is, do you feel that the transit hubs and mass transportation are currently safe for your employees and or the return to office this fall. Um, so again, some, some concerns there. Um, and then the last one is, is your company addressing any public safety concerns as part of their return to work plan? Uh, it looks like most companies are not. So um, Greg and Carol, do you want to add to um, uh, some of the results that we received from the poll. I, so here's, yeah, so here's my uh, context for this. The worst economic downturn in New York City occurred from 1969 to 1977. We lost 620,000 jobs, 400,000 of them in one sector, manufacturing. While there was a really tough recession, 87 to 93, Every downturn after that was shorter and less severe until we got to March of 2020, in which the city in a short period of two months lost about 900,000 jobs. We had had a record 4.6 million jobs. We lost 900,000 of them. And again, one sector bore the biggest brunt of that and it was leisure and hospitality. Where are we today? We are still 510,000 jobs short of our pre-pandemic uh, peak. Only San Francisco and Los Angeles have done worse in regaining jobs. And New York City's economy will not return to anything like its pre-pandemic levels unless two things happen. Unless the office workers come back, unless the tourists comes back. And that's where this connection exists. And that's what your poll just showed. It is the return of office workers and tourists that is the only way New York City can recover. And indeed, what we don't know is we don't know about these structural changes, especially in office work. If, if only 60% of the people are back in Labor Day and they're only working three days a week, that's going to make difference. I was talking to Jeff Gurrell about his buildings in Soho, one of the hardest hit 
retail areas in the city. And he just said unprompted, you know, I'm going to have to cut the rent for those people who are providing breakfast and lunch because they're not going to have as many customers. So that's where the future of New York lies in an economic sense. And that's how this issue plays into it. And, and I would um, hope that this conversation gives you a little more comfort about what the reality is to change the narrative when you have conversations with your employees about what the facts are about how safe the city is. And, and I would encourage you all yourselves to come in and experience it personally so that you can say with confidence to your employees, it is safe. Excuse me. Um, I've, been here. I've been here, I'm using the subway, I'm using mass transit and it is safe. I am comfortable because I think that, that um, and that's what I'm trying to do with our workforce is letting people know that you've got to, and you've got to give people space to do that. Um, again, as I said, it's like using a muscle you haven't used in a long time. Um, and, and their anxiety is, is deeper than just the public safety issue. I think that um, some people use the public safety uncertainty as a hook to, to anchor their other anxieties, um, but it's deeper than that. But if you come out of, the, out of the bubble and experience it, I think that people will see it's, 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 it's wonderful to be back out and engaged in the city and the city um, is a place we wanna be. Um, I, I will pass on the conversations that we've had today to my contacts at the NYPD so that um, we can be thinking about how do we communicate to business, the business community that it is safe to come out. And I think that the, the public service campaigns that they've been running on TV, particularly New York One, um, are really good in terms of getting people excited about coming back. They've used them in the context of the virus and um, the vaccine. And I think we that the, the city needs to engage in that same kind of public awareness campaign to get people comfortable coming back into the city again. And I would just note uh, for a one final point for the question that was just placed, the bids have been playing a major role in keeping the neighborhoods, um, keeping the business districts in good shape. I'm gonna do a story about Soho and um, the bid there played a huge role in getting that neighborhood through the pandemic. But the bids do not have us, are not the solution in a way. The bid couldn't do anything to prevent the fact that one third of the stores in Soho are vacant and they're vacant because the tourists aren't here. Well, thank you both. Um, unless you have any other comments, I think this has been a very engaging dialogue, very informative. We've all um, learned a lot about what the facts are and, uh, and to do our duty in spreading the word that the city is safe and come back and uh, speaking on behalf of us, the audience being in the commercial real estate uh, sector, you know, we need we need the people back. And uh, I think um, Carol and Greg, you you explained um, all of the points and things that we can sort of focus on and lead forward with very well. So thank you so much for for joining us today, and thank you to the audience. And uh, we'll see you at the next Cornet event. Thanks thank very you. much, everyone. Thank you. Enjoy the holiday weekend. Thank you. Have a wonderful holiday. Fantastic. Bye-bye. Have a happy 